Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. We now arrive at the final exercise in the contemplation of phenomena and the final exercise in the Satipatthana Sutta overall. The Contemplation of the Four Noble Truths. The description is as follows. Again, Again bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides, abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths? Here, a bhikkhu understands as it actually is, this is suffering. He understands as it actually is, this is the origin of suffering. He understands as it actually is, this is the cessation of suffering. He understands as it actually is, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. There are two versions of the Satipatthana Sutta that are almost but not quite identical. One is the 22nd Discourse in the Diga Nikaya, the collection of long discourses, and the other is the 10th Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the medium-length discourses. What makes the first one long is that there is a very, very long description of the Four Noble Truths in the Long Discourses as part of this exercise. Otherwise, the two are the same. The Four Noble Truths are, as most of you probably know, a or perhaps the fundamental teaching of the Buddha. It is supposed to summarize everything. The Buddha is said to have taught the Four Noble Truths in his very first Dharma talk, shortly after his awakening. In short, it defines the problem that Buddhist practice and understanding addresses as suffering. There are many ways to define the human dilemma, but suffering in all of its guises is as good as any. Life is a problem, and what do we do about it? If it were not a problem, there would be no point in Buddhist practice. That is the first noble truth. The second noble truth has to do with the origin of suffering. In its expanded version, it makes a bold claim. Craving is the origin of suffering. The third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, makes a prognostication in the long version. Get rid of craving and we get rid of suffering. Simple enough. But that just moves the human dilemma one step back. How do we get rid of craving and suffering in the rest? The answer is in the fourth noble truth, the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In the expanded version of the four noble truths, we learn that 
the way leading to the cessation of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path, the path of practice that cures all that ails us. So our task in this final exercise is huge. We have to understand all this through contemplation in our own moment-to-moment experience. Wow! We can begin small. We notice that two factors are prominent in the first three noble truths, suffering and craving. Suffering and craving are indeed both things we can observe in our moment-to-moment experience. So we're on our way. We want to examine our suffering, our craving, and the conditional relation between them. Do suffering and craving always arise together, or can we get one without the other in our experience? Will craving really turn out to be the origin of suffering? But wait a minute. In many interpretations, the Four Noble Truths are taken to make broad, abstract claims. For instance, that if I am greedy or hateful in this life, both are forms of craving, I will be born in a realm of woe in the next life and suffer there. How do we observe that in moment-to-moment experience? Again, Schulman helps us here. He points out that in the many descriptions of the Four Noble Truths in the discourses, almost always there is something about the wording in Pali, including in the passage we just cited, that tells us something important. There are two words in Pali for English this, or rather two sets of declensions. One is a tongue, and the other imang or idang. A tongue is used when we have been thinking or talking about something that is not momentarily present, not really there physically or mentally. Imang or idang is used when something is currently present in direct experience. If it's physical, we can point at it. Well, this is suffering is idang dukkang, meaning This factor that is actually momentarily present is an instance of suffering. I agree with Shulman that later traditions have tended to philosophize what were early on quite nuts and bolts observations about rather direct experience that would seem therefore to have been highly amenable to investigation through Satipatthana. Our job in Satipatthana is to investigate the suffering, craving, and conditionality that connects them in our actual moment-to-moment experience. So we can set out on this exercise in Satipatthana by examining our own suffering. In many descriptions of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha actually assigns us this task to understand suffering. And actually, we already got to start with this in Satipatthana practice, since suffering is a form of feeling, and feeling is the second Satipatthana. We can engage craving in the same way to try and understand our craving. Actually, we should already have a start with contemplating craving 
in the contemplation of mind, the third satipatthana, as well as in the contemplation of the hindrances, since both, both lust and ill will are associated with craving. Moreover, craving is an intentional act that causes actions in the world, and monitoring our intentional acts is part of developing virtue and is fundamental to right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and right effort, most of the Noble Eightfold Path. We learn to monitor our intentions by becoming aware of our greed, hatred, and delusions, alongside our renunciation, kindness, and wisdom. Our intentional acts are the bases of karma, that is, volitional action, and the quality of our karma is a matter of its intentionality. Craving is bad karma. As we work our way outward, one causal factor at a time, we see that the scope of the topics touched on in the Four Noble Truths is huge, together encompassing perhaps most of the Dharma. So we might also think of the inclusion of the Four Noble Truths among the contemplations of phenomena as an expression of the open-endedness of the contemplation of phenomena, an invitation to subject the entire Dharma to contemplation through Satipatthana. The Four Noble Truths can be seen as a first draft of the links of dependent co-arising. For instance, if we contemplate craving, we naturally ask, what is the origin of craving? Dependent co-arising tells us, feeling. What is the origin of feeling? Contact. Undermining contact is what internal analysis is all about. And dependent co-arising provides the basic guide to that, including contemplation of the sixfold sphere, name and form, cognizance and formations, that is, the aggregates. In short, contemplating the Four Noble Truths, we take hold of one corner of the fabric of Dharma, suffering and craving. As we tug on that corner, all the threads leading out from that corner are pulled along. The threads are conditional relations, the topic of dependent co-arising. They lead to feeling, the presumption of substantial existence, the fixed self, the probing of the senses, sense impressions, cognitive processes of perception, formations and cognizance, attention and volition, appropriation of things we take to exist substantially, the growth of the personal footprint and sense of personal identity, and so on, all of which tell us something about suffering and craving and are fruitful topics of contemplation. We've been neglecting the fourth noble truth. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. The way here is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The eight bullet points of Buddhist practice, none of which mention suffering or craving. How do we observe 
the Noble Eightfold Path experientially, moment to moment. It's important to notice that the path is about practice. This might not be so obvious in the case of right understanding. Most people think, oh, that's Dharma, which is a guide to practice, not practice itself. But right understanding is the practice of study, sometimes memorization, reflection, evaluation, discovery and experience, by which we come to know and to internalize the Dharma. The stages of liberation describe how we acquire the Dharma. In fact, Satipatthana itself is an extension of right understanding, as much as it is an extension of right mindfulness. Internalizing the Dharma is the supreme achievement of right understanding. The Noble Eightfold Path is practice, and practice is something we do moment by moment. Therefore, we should be able to contemplate each of these eight points of practice as we practice them or as we fail to practice them. In fact, we've already begun to do this with the contemplation of the hindrances and the contemplation of the seven factors of awakening. Recall that these two exercises have to do with observing the practice itself of satipatthana. Avoiding the hindrances is part of right effort. The seven factors of awakening begin with practicing right mindfulness and effort, then turns to right concentration. We can similarly contemplate our engagement with precepts, monitoring of intentions, and so on. Again, I venture to suggest that the including of the Four Noble Truths is an invitation to investigate all aspects of practice under the contemplation of phenomena. Let's finish with the refrain about internal analysis. In In this this way, way, he abides abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena internally, or he abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena externally, or he abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena both internally and externally, or else he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of both arising and vanishing or else mindfulness that there are phenomena is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths. I've defined internal analysis throughout these talks as concerned with demonstrating the cognitive constructedness of our presumptions about fixed and substantial existence. In terms of dependent co-arising, these presumptions are established by the time we get to contact, causing huge problems for humans, including the conditioning of craving. Since contact gives rise to feeling, feeling gives rise to craving. 
by the time we crave our internal analysis as defined has already failed us. We are already downstream, suffering from the pollution generated upstream. My thinking about these issues has evolved over the course of these talks, and I'm beginning to see the value of formulating a broader definition of internal analysis. And I'll work on this in the weeks after this series of podcasts has ended. Recall that the point of internal analysis is to demonstrate the cognitive constructedness of our sense of reality. That is, no matter where we look, the mind is actively creating our experiences, even our sense that the moon actually exists. But cognition is faulty, flighty, presumptive, and unreliable. We can just as well experience things otherwise. Internal analysis provides an alternative to our normal narrative model of what's going on. Things are just out there, involved in their own conditionality from their own side. Heat, fuel, and oxygen makes fire, and so on. Independent of us. Then we look out and see what is going on. Internal analysis acknowledges mental engagement, its role in determining what we think is real. It asks not what we experience out there, but rather how we come to experience what we do experience. It is epistemic rather than objective, subjective rather than objective. It does not take the magic show at face value, but looks behind the scenes to see how the trick works. Craving and suffering are responses to what we think is real. However, they are also mentally determined experiences. In this sense, contemplation of how they arise is also internal analysis and an alternative to external narratives about what is going on out there. Accordingly, we engage in external narratives like, she made me mad, she made me sad, she made me want to do it, she made me want to pull my hair out, etc. In contrast to the internal questions, how does suffering arise? How does craving arise? I'll work on formulating a broader definition that I think will bring together the very few cases we've run across in which the strict definition fails to quite make sense. This completes our discussion of the many Satipatthana exercises. Next week, we'll discuss the conclusion of the Satipatthana Sutta and draw our own conclusions from this long series of podcasts, which we may be able to thereby conclude. <laughs>